as the uh, worship team heads to their seats, just again, I, I you know we do this from time to time, but thank you. Thank you, Kevin and team, just for how you lead us and prepare us to come and be in the word together. We appreciate that. Proverbs 16, 9 says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Most of us are planners. Some of us are a little more organized than others, but, but most of us make plans. Most of us probably already have some, some plans in place for Thanksgiving, for, for Christmas. Uh, if you don't already have them, you're probably working on them. Some of you may travel over that time. Some of you are thinking about meals and gatherings. If, if anything has come out of 2020, if we've learned anything, it's that we are more aware than ever of how fragile and tentative those plans are, how much we may desire to, to look ahead and sort of lay out some kind of schedule, but we're very much aware that we are not masters over our destiny in any way. This past week has reaffirmed that regardless of your political leanings, if, if you had written down last Sunday all of your expectations and projections for all of the various elections for the week ahead, I don't think any of us would have gotten any of it you know, precisely right all the way through. Uh, clearly, the so-called experts struggled to understand things. And so we can plan, we can strategize, but ultimately, one thing remains constant. That's what Stuart alluded to just a few moments ago. God is on his throne. God, God has purposes that he intends to accomplish through man, through his church, and God accomplishes these things. God says it in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20. It is in the midst of chaos and violence that it says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. It is this statement of assurance from God that, that regardless of, of what you're experiencing, what you planned that hasn't gone right and, and how circumstances have turned around, God is on his throne. There may be bedlam all around, things going not as we predicted, but God rules. Acts chapter 15 is where we are, and we're going to pick up this morning in verse 36. We left off last week looking at the Jerusalem council down through verse 35. Verse 36 starts the, the second of Paul's missionary journeys. We followed him on the first one that went down to Cyprus and then up to Pisidian Antioch and then to Lystra and Derbe. They've been back in Antioch. Uh, they've been teaching in Antioch. They've been down to Jerusalem, had that Jerusalem council. Now it's preparations for a second journey. And I, and I want us to look at, we're going to look at 1536 down through 1610 and just three scenes from the, the early moments of this journey. Three scenes that, that I think one of the things they share in common is they all have the potential to be a little confusing, a little difficult, a little messy to sort of sort through as to what's going on here. And yet the consistent thread is God accomplishing his purposes. For the sake of simplicity, I'm just, you have them in the notes there before you. Three things. There's a conflict in ministry, between partners in ministry, between Christian brothers, there's a concession that's made for the sake of ministry. And then ultimately, there is a constraint on man's plans for ministry. Man has certain designs. God constrains these plans. And so we're going to walk through that conflict, the concession, and then that constraint all of which have the potential to, at minimum, raise questions. What's happening here? Why is it going this way? 
some of them to contribute to confusion. And yet through it all, there is this consistent thread. God is accomplishing his purposes. God is strengthening his church. God is growing his church. God is active through all of these moments that may have seemed confusing and unsettling. So let's take the first scene. It's Acts 15, verse 36, down to the end of the chapter. It says, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return, visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord, and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. There arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Here's the conflict. We remember the root of this conflict. It goes back to chapter 13 in that first missionary journey. And Paul and Barnabas have taken John Mark from Jerusalem and they have set out on this trip and perhaps there's others with them. But, but John Mark is a trusted colleague. He is a needed colleague. This is a difficult trip. There's all sorts of logistics and there's a need for other servants along the way. And early in that trip, Mark leaves. He abandons it. It's described as, as parting ways with them, but, but in a sense of, of just leaving them, of abandoning them and returning back to Jerusalem. So here we are sometime later. This is perhaps even a couple of years later, and they have finished that journey. They have been back. They have taught in, in Antioch. They have been to Jerusalem. So time has passed, and, and, and Paul says, let's go back. Let's go back to Lystra and Derby and Pisidia and Antioch and these cities where, where we planted churches and let's go and strengthen the disciples. Let's go and teach and, and do the, the ministry of discipleship. And, and, and Barnabas is on board with the trip and Barnabas says, great, let's go. And let's, let's take Mark along with us. And Paul's like, nope. No, I, no, I, I, I got bad memories of, of having had him leave us the first time and abandon us. Can't afford to have that happen again. So no. This is a sort of painful scene on one sense as we read this because it, it sort of takes us into the nitty-gritty in a way that, that isn't necessarily comfortable to see Barnabas the encourager and Paul who gives us so much of the New Testament by God's grace and, and to see them at this sharp disagreement. Kent Hughes puts it this way, no one can rightly blame Barnabas for wanting to give his cousin a second chance, nor can we fault Paul for fearing to trust him again. Our judgment goes with Paul, but our hearts go with Barnabas. That's probably fair. We read this, and, and, and in part, it's like, ah, why, why does this have to escalate to this point? Don't, don't we want to believe that these two godly, faithful servants could have somehow maneuvered through this and this contention not split them? But it did. And, and the fact that verse 40 says, Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, would tell us that the, the leadership at the church in Antioch, the group that sent them out on their first journey, also sent forth Paul and Silas with their blessing. They commend them to the grace of the Lord. And so whatever all transpired here, and however it looked at the end when Barnabas left with, with Mark, Paul now is preparing to leave with Silas. At some point, the church comes to settle on this separation, and it prays for them and commends them to the grace of the Lord. So in some way, 
this is resolved with them going their separate ways. You and I don't have a lot here. It's not like we can draw any real strong judgments on this, on Paul or Barnabas. They went their separate ways. One of the, one of the joyous outcomes, though, of this whole story is what we find later on near the end of Paul's life, that there has been some reconciliation. If you recall, Paul is in prison, and when he writes to Timothy as his final letter in 2 Timothy 4, he says, Luke alone is with me. Luke, the author of Acts, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Doesn't that encourage you that somewhere along the way, in a way that the writers didn't let us in on, there was something that, that clicked again, the Spirit of God worked, and Mark and Paul became colleagues in ministry to the point that Paul is saying, I've only got Luke here, I need someone else, could you send Mark, because he is useful. So there's, there's great encouragement in that, but but here at the end of Acts 15, with the blessing of the church, they go their separate ways. Paul and Silas heading west across the land toward the region of Galatia. Barnabas and, and uh, Mark now going south toward across the ocean out to, to Cyprus, to the island that Barnabas was from. And, and we will not see what Barnabas does at this point. There's no more about that part of the trip. But verse 41 says, Paul and Silas passed through Syria, the region that Antioch would have been in, strengthening the churches. There's the key in each of these scenes. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. As difficult as that moment, that season was in Antioch of, of these two brothers that had helped establish the church in Antioch and had led them and they had looked to now parting ways not really on the same page and having had a sharp disagreement, as, as difficult as that is, it does not thwart the work of God. In fact, there's a sense in which God takes the dispute between these men and, and almost multiplies the effect of it in that you now have a, a team of godly men going to Cyprus and helping to establish the churches there, and you have these other two partners who are going out to Lystra and Derby, and they are strengthening churches there. And it's almost as if God is showing that he will multiply his work in accomplishing his purposes, even through the foolishness sometimes of man. Now, that is, that is not a license or excuse for conflict that, that you know, we should... We should split, find ways to split with each other because we can multiply our efforts. That's, that's not what this is teaching us. But it is a reminder that the things on earth that so often seem so difficult to us, that seem like they are great obstacles, do not deter God's plans. And so again, just to, to remind us of what we've been talking about all this week, no matter how you feel about who was in the White House, who is in the White House, or who's going to be in the White House, trust me that, that the sovereign of all the universe was never anxious about the outcome of the election, it was never concerned about what it might do to his plans, never worried about it in any way. We, we experienced this here at, at Grace a few years back. We, we went through a, a challenging season. And, and, and frankly, as, as the elder team will remind you, we are all sinners. And there will probably be challenging seasons ahead. We're a local church. And, and, and there are struggles and, and difficulties that do come up. But we've often looked back on that period and seen how God graciously 
kindly, mercifully carried Grace Bible Church through that scene, through that season, remaining steadfast, trusting in his word, having relied on the, the, the preaching that was given to us over the years by men who are, are gone in different ways and are not with us at this point, and yet they God used them to help establish us in the word and in the conviction that we remain firm on this truth and we remain faithful to these things. And God has seen fit to bless and to prosper and to strengthen through that. We should take encouragement in that. Even, even in conflict, the sovereign God is still accomplishing his purposes. So now look at chapter 16, the next piece of this. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So here it is again, the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. All right, so the, the trip begins with, with conflict. God continues to work through that. Short ways in, Paul makes this interesting, at best, concession to Jewish unbelievers that he is seeking to evangelize. Again, Paul's strategy, you go into a city, you go to the synagogue, you, you preach that the Messiah you've anticipated has come, it is Jesus, and we are here to preach him to you. And, and yet Paul makes this interesting concession for the sake of those Jews. This, this scene involving Timothy and this circumcision feels even a little extra jarring in light of what we've just read in Acts chapter 15, where the whole controversy was triggered by a debate over circumcision and this sort of rite of initiation that some were teaching. The whole Jerusalem council got started on this. This debate happened over circumcision because some Jewish teachers went from Jerusalem up to Antioch and said, you can worship are Jewish Messiah Gentiles. You can, you can come and be part of the people of God, but you've got to go through the rite of initiation. And, and so male Gentiles will have to be circumcised because that's what's required of you. And then, of course, they got into the law and all of that. But, but essentially, this all starts with these Jewish teachers coming to lay this burden on, on Gentile believers and Paul saying, whoa, this is not right. And so the whole matter gets taken down to Jerusalem to be discussed and, and resolved. We know from Acts 15 that, that the argument of the Jewish teachers was overruled, that, that you repent of your sin, you turn from your sin, and you embrace Jesus as Savior, and you are justified. You are saved by faith in Christ. And, and, and it's very clear from the Jerusalem Council, don't, don't make something up or add something here or take something else from history and trouble the Gentiles with it. They must believe on Jesus, just as we did. Repent and believe, that's what's required, and so there is no requirement of circumcision. Now, here comes Timothy, who apparently is a believer in Jesus Christ, who is mixed race, Jewish mother, Gentile father. Paul sees him. He's told about him. There's testimony about Timothy. He sees great potential in, in, in Timothy for ministry as a, as a young man that he can bring along and lead and, and shepherd and use in ministry who can help others, but he also knows that when he goes into the, the Jewish synagogues, especially in the local towns in that region that, that know Timothy, that they know that his dad was Greek. This, this seems to, to be some 
almost past tense in terms of the way that he describes it here. So we're, we're led to believe that Timothy's father has passed, but there is a knowledge that he was a Greek and that Timothy was not circumcised. And, and so now Paul says, I don't, want to, I don't want to create a stumbling block. And so Timothy is circumcised. The, the question then becomes, is this a compromise in some way? Coming out of Acts 15, are we compromising the truth in some way? Because Paul says he did this, verse 3, because of the Jews. Again, I, the, the passage is clear on this, but you can certainly, if you put yourself back in that setting, imagine that there were probably some questions. There were probably some young believers who were trying to sort out this reading of this decision from the church of Jerusalem that says, here, Gentiles, here's, here's no more idol feasts for you, no more participation in this, but no other burden. And then hearing that Paul requires circumcision of, of Timothy. And so some clarity is needed. Luke does not belabor Paul's concession, so we need to think about it for just a moment. The first thing that's clear is the basic principle of Acts 15 still stands. This is not a question of initiation, this is not anything to do with Timothy's justification. It's, it's not a question, again, of whether a mixed-race guy must be circumcised in order to come into the people of God, because the very first reference to Timothy in verse 1 says, a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. It, it, it's clear in Luke's introduction that when they met Timothy, he was already considered a follower of Jesus Christ. He was a, a disciple. And in fact, Paul will write later in 2 Timothy 1, I am reminded to Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. That, that mother who verse 1 of Acts 16 says was a believer. Timothy was saved by faith in Jesus Christ, uh, this circumcision is not for his justification. It does not change his, his standing before God, but it does remove what would have otherwise been a significant stumbling block to unbelieving Jews, to have this one come into their synagogue who, in their minds, they're still wrestling with in terms of, of cleanness and, and appropriateness, and, and for Paul to travel and enter synagogues to proclaim the gospel, he understands that, that Timothy could be a problem. And so he goes through this, and John Stott writes it this way. He says, once the theological principle was firmly established, that salvation is by grace alone, the, that which was settled in Acts 15, and that circumcision was not required but neutral, Paul was prepared to adjust his practical policies. What, what Paul does here is what Paul preaches through the book of Romans and through 1 Corinthians, when he speaks repeatedly about weaker brethren and not causing them to stumble. He makes a great point of that in Romans 14 and 15, and again in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, that, that we who are mature need to be careful. In Romans 14, speaking about matters of conscience, Paul says to believers, don't, don't ever put a stumbling block in the way of a brother. In fact, Romans 15, he begins with, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Serve. And, and, and if serving means giving something up on your part, that's, that's okay. 
because you're called to serve. You're called to love God and love neighbor. 1 Corinthians 8, we alluded to it last week. That's the, the piece where Paul says when it comes to meat sacrificed to idols, it's not the meat that's the issue. It's the participation in the sacrifice to the idols. That's what you should not be part of is the, the whole feast surrounding the idol worship. But the meat itself, that's inconsequential. But Paul also knew when he taught that, that there were mature Christians who got that and who said, yep, I, I understand the freedom I have in Christ to eat this meat, not participate in the feast but that there were also weaker brothers who were still struggling with that, that very meat. And, and so he says in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. In other words, listen, if, if you're eating that meat is going to cause some younger brother to stumble in some way, then take a pass on it and, and, and teach and disciple the younger brother and pray for him and come alongside him. But don't, don't mess him up in this way. Don't do something that you don't, need to do. It's okay to give up some of your freedom in practice for the sake of a, of a weaker brother and not cause him to stumble. In 1 Corinthians 9, he says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Paul saying there is room here for mature believers to make concessions that may even impinge on some of our freedom in Christ for the benefit of either younger brothers or those who are not believers and, 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 and culturally adapting in some way it, it, as long as we're not being asked to sin so that we don't cause them to stumble in seeing Jesus Christ. There is really just a sense of strategy in, in Paul's approach here. It is to, to be the most effective and efficient servant that, that's bringing the gospel to people and not allowing silly things to get in the way of that. And so he does this to, to avoid hindering the proclamation of the gospel. Let me, in terms of application for you and I, I'm going to read you a long quote and we'll put it up on the screen because I, I just think it says it better than, than anything I could say. And so here it is. As long as adapting doesn't mean adopting a sinful action, we should be willing to follow certain cultural customs in order that hearers may receive the gospel. Our goal, after all, is not to press our culture on another culture, but to press the gospel into various cultures. So if people reject your ministry, make sure it's the gospel and not your cultural biases and practices. That's the stumbling block to effectiveness. If you need to wear a yarmulke when speaking to Jews, then do it. If you need to sit on the floor with Muslims in order to converse, sit on the floor. If you need to wear a particular type of robe in a village in order to address the unreached, then put on the robe. If you need to abstain from certain foods, do it. Put no stumbling block in the way of the gospel. That, that for us, is, is what's happening here. There's the, there, there's the God, God is at work in this. And, and, and if a concession is needed, we should be the ones to make that concession. Not compromising truth or biblical principles, but conceding that I have freedom here and I, and I don't need to exercise that freedom. I, I want Christ to be magnified. And that's, that's what Paul's concession is to do. The outcome again, verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. So there again, this scene that has the potential to say, why he's doing this. this, this doesn't seem consistent. Well, actually, no, there's a reason for it, and it's a good concession, and God is accomplishing his purpose. A situation that had that potential for confusion, Paul will later explain in 1 Corinthians and Romans, as we read, this is, this is just trying to be a faithful steward, and so God continues his work. All right, verse 6, last 
section here that we'll look at this morning. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, by the, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Just a, a, a note worth identifying here is this is the first time now in Acts that we start to get the we commentary from Luke. So Luke apparently joins Paul and Silas at this part, and we now go over to Macedonia. And so Luke has probably put a lot of this together previously, perhaps some from eyewitness stuff, um, some also from the accounts that he's been given by others, all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so that it's ultimately God's work. But the conflict, the concession, and now this constraint. So the, the missionary journey, this second missionary journey, begins in Antioch. We've talked about Antioch, north, east corner of, of the Mediterranean Sea. Do we have a shot of the map that we can look at? So uh, far right side is Antioch. Barnabas and Mark traveled by ship. That, that line's not marked. They go down to Cyprus. Paul and Silas are going west. Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, about the middle of the map, which would be Pisidian Antioch, which we've read about before. And it's somewhere there that they're on the verge of going further west into the area of Asia, which would have included Ephesus, which is down on the tip of the Aegean Sea. You see them come back around ultimately to Ephesus. But, but at this point, they make this sort of odd turn up to the north and cut straight across. And, and it's clear from what he says here, we wanted to go down to Asia. Then we thought, okay, we'll go up to Bithynia. And instead, they keep going straight because they are cut off on, on both other routes. Um, Asia, perhaps they are able to go that way, but they're not allowed, not permitted to preach there for, by some means. And then the trip up north, they are constrained. So twice, they are blocked from either speaking in a place that they have desired to speak or going to a place where they have desired to go. And ultimately, it is a vision from God that, that then directs them across the Aegean Sea over into Macedonia with Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and the cities that are there where, where we'll read about. And, and of course, we read New Testament letters. Luke doesn't tell us how this worked. We, we, we sometimes on these sorts of passages, we'd, we'd like to get the mechanics of this. How was it, how were they stopped? How, how were they directed not to, to preach in this place? Could have been a vision, although I, I think from what we've seen already in Acts and right here, visions often are pretty clearly identified. It, it, Peter received this vision, Paul received a vision, and so those kind of things are stated. So perhaps God set difficulties in their way. Something blocked them. There were some logistics. Maybe the government intervened in some way and stopped them. Uh, perhaps another prophet spoke to them. Perhaps there were some restrictions placed on their travel. Perhaps there was an inner sort of united impression that we should not do this, that God is not leading us this way and we should not go there. We don't know, and God has not seen fit to give us the details. That's why in Acts we have to stop and remind ourselves from time to time this is describing, not necessarily prescribing. It's not saying this is always how it should work, but it is saying this is, this is how it took place then. 
This is certainly one of those, one of those passages in Scripture, though, that contributes to our own language of God opening and closing doors. We often speak in those kinds of terms of God seeming to, to make pathways and to, to open a door of ministry or to close a door of ministry. And, and, and certainly what's happening here is a sovereign God, by means of his providence, through circumstances, through direct leading of the Spirit, whatever it might be, God in his providence is leading his people to do his will. He is giving clear direction here to keep them from going one way and instead to go in a, a certain way. Now, there's a whole another sermon we could do about discerning God's leading, uh, but, but, but let's think a couple of things here. I, one is we, we, need to, we need to be cautious about making conclusions about God's specific will in all of our circumstances and, and, and every step we take. I, I, by that, I don't mean that God is not sovereign over these things. I'm saying we need to be cautious about how we both discern those things and what we conclude about them, what sort of judgments we make about how God is leading. Again, Luke describing, not prescribing, but while we can say that where we are today, here, sitting here, watching online, that that is, that is God's ordained will that, that we are here. We believe God is sovereign and we are not here by accident or coincidence. It is God that has you in this place listening to the, the preaching of, of Acts 16. But where we should be cautious is about stamping God's authority on our every impression and, and feeling and saying that everything then, it's potential here that there, there was an internal impression that led them. We need to be careful about stating with certainty that because I feel this way, because something's been impressed on me, that is clearly God speaking to me. That is God who is doing this. That is God who is willing. It, it may be for us as frail, finite human beings, we'll probably see that better in hindsight than we will in terms of prophetic looking forward or in the moment. There is the reality that our, the kindness of God still accomplishes his will even when he allows his children to make wrong decisions. We can all look back on circumstances that that were not the wisest of choices on our part, that somehow God still brought together for good and brought glory to himself. And, and, and so all I'm saying to you here is as, as you think about a passage like this, is don't just be careful with, with the, the God told me. God, God clearly is stopping me from going over to Woodbridge this day. I, you know, I, I went to get on the ramp in traffic, and that is God who is stopping me from going to Woodbridge. God may not want you in Woodbridge today. Just be careful about when you add God said, God did. We know what God said because we have it in his word. That we rely on authoritatively. Everything else, hold loosely. And as you look back on it, glorify God that, boy, I'm glad I wasn't there because I would have been in an accident, you know, getting off that ramp with everybody else. Praise God how he worked to, to keep me away from that. A.T. Pearson lived more than a century ago, and preached and, and preached a lot about missions and, and just the, the, how God works in this. And he, he did commentary in the book of Acts. And one of the things he points out is that what, what goes on in Paul's journey has happened throughout the history of missions. And he, he cites a number of examples. David Livingston, who is famous to us in missions for what he did in Africa, first wanted to go to China 
but there were wars going on between Britain and China, and so he couldn't go there. God redirected him to Africa, where he had this extensive ministry. William Carey, who's often referred to as the, the, the father of modern missions, had his heart initially set on Tahiti in the South Pacific, and God instead moved him to India, and he did great work in India in establishing the gospel. Not many years after Carey, Adoniram Judson wants to go to India and gets there and is ejected from the country because the, the government has moved him out. And so he ends up in Burma and he translates the New Testament and a church is planted there and, and, and the gospel spreads. And Pearson writes, we too in our day need to trust God for guidance and rejoice equally in his restraints and constraints. We need to be able to say, it, it, it's okay if I didn't get to do my dream if it didn't go exactly as I planned, if, it didn't, if my, my calendar and my system didn't exactly go the way that, that God ultimately navigated it. God graciously guides his people, but not always in the way that we would prefer. Sometimes he stops us from dreams that we think are so important. And, and Acts 16 is reminding us that God in his goodness and his grace is sovereignly rearranging things on us, arranging them from his perspective. He's not having to rearrange. God is sovereignly arranging things in our lives to set the stage for a dramatic work in Macedonia that was not on Paul's immediate itinerary. He is going to go over to Thessalonica and Philippi and Berea, and the church is going to blossom in this region of Macedonia. We read about it in 1 Thessalonians, how the gospel spread from you, you received it, and it spread throughout that region. That was not on, on, on Paul's initial schedule for how this was going to go. And yet God in his sovereignty accomplishes that. And the call for you and I is be content. Be content where God has us. Glorify God in whatever season you are in, whether it's a difficult one or one that seems prosperous and joyous. Glorify God in those circumstances, even when they are not your design because they are his design for you. So we can have peace in that, and we can be good stewards, and we can serve faithfully and trust that we are experiencing this season in this place because our good God has us here right now, and he's going to use us in this place and in this season. God used conflict in ministry to multiply the work of bringing people to himself and growing his church he used a concession that seemed odd at the time, and yet it helped teach people more effective ministry and how to, how to concede for the benefit of others, to yield one's own freedom for the sake of the weaker brother. And God moved circumstances and constrained his people in ways that probably first raised questions. You're Paul, and, and you're wanting to press forward, and now you're stopped. Maybe there's a little temptation toward frustration, but it's all because the sovereign strategy for ministry is better than Paul's. God's design was even better. Do we believe these truths? Do we believe those truths when we're in the middle of conflict, when we're having to give concession to a weaker brother, when our plans are being rearranged? And if we do, the call then, the response to all this is not passive sort of just yielding to God's sovereignty in a way that says, I'm just going to... You're right, God's sovereign, so I guess what I should do is just lay still and wait for God to do whatever God's going to do, because God's sovereign. Look at how he moved all this and arranged this. That, that is not what you see Paul doing. 
throughout this. There is a firm belief that God is sovereign and he is strengthening his churches. And yet Paul, when he has the disagreement with Barnabas, doesn't throw up his hands. The church at Antioch doesn't say, oh, this is ridiculous. We, we can't even go forward. He continues to, to proclaim the gospel and to press forward. Paul and Silas continue to move in one direction or another. Timothy is not, his mixed race background does not become an obstacle to ministry because they are trusting God. We are going to press forward. When, when they are moving in one direction and God closes it, they try another and God closes it. They, they apparently keep moving to the West and they keep moving until God makes a way that is clear. That's our response to this. It's not to, not to be ridiculously passive and, and sort of lay back and say, well, I don't know what to do. God's sovereign, sort of a fatalistic point of view. We are called to press forward in the work of making disciples. Our Savior goes with us. He is always with us. He has called us to this work. He has called us to press forward. And so we need to press forward in proclaiming Christ and living Christ and sharing Christ because the, the same spirit sent by Jesus, and I love when he uses that language in verse 7, the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. We had the Holy Spirit in verse 6, the spirit of Jesus, and it speaks of God giving a vision. It, it, it's almost Trinitarian in, in, in Luke's view of this, that the whole Godhead is involved in this process. And that same spirit sent by Jesus to Paul and Silas, who clearly directed their steps, is the same spirit that fills you and I as believers in Jesus Christ and promises to guide and lead and be with us and guide us. We're called to to yield to that, to pray for that, to seek after that, to live in community where we can help one another actively press forward and seek God's will in these things. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and, and just through history reminding us that conflict and difficulties and obstacles that can come up are not new. They were the early church was not immune to these things. It didn't all just go without hindrances or hitches or obstacles of any kind. There were things that, that happened. And your people did not throw up their hands in frustration. They did not simply quit. They, as we're seeing here from Paul and Silas, they, they pressed on. They pressed on seeking your blessing and your leading and, and your spirit to guide and accompany them. They looked for your guidance. They rested in your guidance and they kept doing what they were called to do, to be faithful with your word. And so we need that help. There's some here who are looking for wisdom about a job, about a spouse, about a difficult child, about a health issue, uh, just all sorts of things that, that racing through the minds of your people and the things that might potentially hinder us or make us question where your leading is in this. And yet what's so clear here in Scripture is that you are, you are at work, you are accomplishing your purposes, your purposes are good, that, that what you set out to do you will accomplish and it will be for your glory and for the good of your people. Refresh in us, again, an acceptance of that, a joy in that, a contentment in believing in your strong hand. Help us, your people, to, to as best as we are able, follow after your will, to pursue it as believers in community, to yield to your spirit as best we can, 
to be searching your word for your truth, that it might instruct us and help us and guide us in our decisions so that ultimately we may see you glorified in this season, in our lives, where we are right now. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning, watching this morning, who is not trusting in Jesus Christ, uh, they are, this is not a coincidence. They are not randomly stumbling on some message about Jesus Christ and the gospel and the early church. It is your good hand and your providence that has brought them to this place to expose them to the truth that Jesus Christ alone is the Savior, that we all are sinners and we all need to be made right with our Creator and we need forgiveness of our sins. So, Father, by your grace, would you open their eyes to see the same glorious Savior that, that drove these early apostles and servants out into faraway places to preach Christ because they wanted to proclaim the Savior and the hope and the forgiveness in Christ. You open the eyes of anyone watching today who's not trusting him to see Jesus, to, to believe that Jesus has died on the cross and that he alone can save them from their sin and give them peace, lasting eternal peace in their heart. Father, may you this week, we, we have no idea what this, what's ahead in this week. There will be good circumstances, at least as we define them, and bad circumstances as, as we might define them going in. And so we are pleading with you to give to us contented hearts and inner joy and peace that surpasses our circumstances, that we might obey you and glorify you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray it.